For the last two weeks, we've taken the book of Hebrews and looked at chapters 8 through 10 as a mini-series called The End of Religion. If you want, turn with me to the book of Hebrews to chapter 8, found on page 1005 in the Black Bibles around you. The reason why I've entitled this The End of Religion is because of the radical difference the teaching of early Christianity here in Hebrews 8, 9, and 10, and and many other places throughout the New Testament, contrasted with the religions of the day when Christians taught and believed these things. So much so that, as has been referenced, Christians were called atheists, were persecuted for their faith, for not having really a God to worship inside of a temple and sacrifices to make, because Jesus Christ has done away with the temple, and he has once and for all been the final sacrifice for our sins. In part, what I'm hoping that you will learn through this mini-series about the end of religion is the general category of how different Christianity works, really not just in the early centuries that the church was started, but even still today, religions of the world And even people who take Christianity, distort it, and make it just another religion, lumped together with all the other world religions, is so far from what the Bible is trying to communicate. So I ask you this morning, are you a religious person, or are you a Christian person, or a gospel person? We've talked about how religious people, they obey God in order to be accepted by God, And there's some sort of list of morality or rules to obey, and that if you do them, God will be pleased. However, the gospel says that you are accepted right where you are now by faith in Jesus alone. Therefore, obey. It's radically different, friends. Religious people, the motivation is almost always fear or insecurity. Oftentimes, it's the fear of hell or judgment. Have you noticed this before? I need to obey these things because I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to be judged. Whereas gospel-driven people are motivated by grateful joy that God has already taken on himself the curse and punishment of hell. Joyful motivation. Grateful joy. That's what gospel people look like. Religious people obey God because they ultimately want to get things from God. They pray to God because there's things that they want to get from Him. It's more like an an exchange that we have in the business world. I want this. I do these things. I pay this amount of sacrifices, goods, prayers. God gives me them. Gospel people go to God because they love God. They want Him. They know him and they cherish who he is and how he has revealed himself to us. He is the gospel, as John Piper said. God is the good news of the gospel. Jesus prayed in John 17, this is eternal life, that you would know me. That's what eternal life is about, knowing and being with God. Gospel people see the difference. Go to God just to get things from him. We go to God because we love God. Who are you this morning? Are you more religious? When things go wrong in your life, it's because God failed you or because you failed? Or are you a gospel person where when things go wrong in your life, 
you wrestle with God and see that God's using even those to make you more like himself. When you're criticized, does your whole world unravel? That's what religious people look like. Because all of their worldview is based on their performance, and so if their performance isn't doing so well, then their whole world crumbles down. But gospel people, when they're criticized, aren't unraveled. They know that sin was the reason that they were brought to Jesus in the first place, and so they know there's still sin that remains, and so they know that there is always need for godly criticisms. Are you seeing the differences? what I want us to be thinking through as we consider the teachings of the early church in Hebrews chapter 8 through 10. There's a stark difference between the religious mindset of the world then and even the world today and the unique teaching and preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have two simple points I want to make as we conclude this little mini-series in chapters 8, 9, and 10. As we have already seen, Jesus brings an end to religion by bringing it into the temple, by becoming the final temple and sacrifice. No more need for sacrifices, no more need for a temple, the end of the temple, the end of the sacrifice. Here, thirdly and finally, we will see that Jesus brings an end to the old covenant law altogether. So two simple points that make this plain. Jesus, first point of this message, Jesus did not come to bring a new religion He came to bring a new relationship with his people. Christianity is not about a new religion on the face of the earth. It's not a 2,000-year-old religion. It's a 2,000-year-old new relationship based on an old, old relationship that was started many years ago. We see this clearly as we look through the whole Bible, not just the New Testament teachings, but the whole Bible and its reference to what we hear called covenants. Now, when I say that word, I know that immediately some of you are like, what in the world is a covenant? And some of you have heard the word covenant before because you've been in church or read your Bible, but you still honestly don't know what a covenant is. I mean, can't we just modernize it and find a better, cooler, easier to understand word? Maybe it's like a contract. Maybe it's just a a promise. Is, Is that what it is? Those words we're familiar with, contracts, promises. Friends, contract could have helpful ideas in your mind when you think of covenants. There's some parallels, but it's just it's not enough. Promise is a good word, but that still doesn't go far enough either. Covenant is a unique word for a unique relationship, and I think that's just the best we've got. So let's stick with covenant, and let's just know what that word means. What is a covenant? A covenant is a loving relationship within legal regulations. That's the simplest way that I think I can define it here. It's a loving relationship plus legal regulations put together. There's no covenant in the Bible, nor that we know in history, where the covenant term is used, where you don't have two groups of people or two individuals that don't already have an established relationship together. And this relationship seems to be mutually agreeable to one another. They love one another. They care for each other. And in fact, the covenant is to help preserve the relationship and take it a step further. And that's why there's these oaths, these promises, and these regulations that are law-binding relationship regulations to establish and make sure that the relationship stays and perseveres for a long time. 
I want to read to you real quick from Deuteronomy chapter 7. You don't need to turn there. I just want to give you an example of how God uses covenant language to explain love and law. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all of the peoples to be his treasured possession. But it was not because you were more in number than any of the people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For in fact, you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and keeps his oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commands to a thousand generations. Friends, did you hear again and again, love, I chose you because I love you. He loves you because he loves you. That's what he's saying here. There's no other reason. It's not because they're great. It's not because they're mighty. It's not because they're moral or immoral. It's just because he loves them. But on top of that, it's also because there is an oath and a promise that he swore. There's this sort of legal binding relationship that he's made with these people that he loves. And so because of that, he will be faithful. Know therefore that your God is a faithful God who keeps his covenant, his promise, his oath, his law, and his steadfast love. Friends, if we read through the Bible, that's just one small excerpt of getting the the grip of covenant language. Loving relationship with legal regulations. Marriage is one of the best pictures of this, is it not? And in fact, we see from the Bible on different occasions, marriage is explicitly called a covenant relationship between a man and a woman. Think through a marriage relationship. You start with two people who already have some sort of relationship with each other. Even if it's an arranged marriage, there's some sort of arrangement based on the relationship of the two families. It's not just complete strangers out of nowhere. Every marriage in all of history has two people who have some sort of knowledge of one another in general, right? So there's this loving relationship, and instead of perpetuating this loving relationship into what we call dating, where it just goes on forever with no commitment, they say, no, no, I love you so much, I'm going to exclusively commit to you and no one else for the rest of my life. Loving relationship, legal regulations, till death do us part, for better or for worse, for sickness and in health. Until I die, I'm with you because I love you that much. That's marriage. That's a covenant. That's an example of what we're talking about when God chooses Israel. He loves them so much, has a relationship with them, and says, I'm choosing you and covenantally binding myself to you forever. This is exactly what we see happening in the book of Hebrews, where this idea of covenant is now being explained through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Look with me in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. See Jesus' loving relationship and legal regulations in this covenant. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. This is not the first and last time 
that the writer of Hebrews has referenced the fact that Jesus is the mediator of a new and better covenant. But here we see an extended explanation of how this new and better covenant is such incredibly good news for you and me. The fact that Jesus has done away with the temple, done away with the final sacrifices, are all just small examples of how he has ultimately done away with the old covenant and now ushered in a brand new covenant on better promises. It says that he has a ministry that is more excellent. This ministry is the priestly ministry. If we're flowing with the flow of thought of the writer of Hebrews, he's made it quite clear several different times, but especially starting in chapter 7, where he's talking about Jesus Christ being the priest-king And so you see in chapter 8, verse 1, the point I'm trying to say is this. We have a high priest. That's Jesus. He's seated at the right hand of the throne and majesty in heaven, and he is a minister. He is serving us in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not the one made by man. So here in verse 6, he's now building off of that and say, this ministry that he has as our priest is more excellent than the old ministry of the old priests. In the same way that the old covenant is being outdone by the more excellent new covenant. Do you see the logic here? This idea of the old covenant that I just read to you from Deuteronomy, God choosing a people, the nation of Israel, and setting his love upon them and saying, I will put an oath and a promise to connect my love with your people forever is now being applied to Jesus' work on the cross his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to heaven, and his forever being seated at the right hand of the Father, ministering for us there. That's the priestly connection to Jesus, and now we have a covenant connection to Jesus in verse 6 and 7. But it says that in verse 7 that there was a fault with the first covenant, which immediately brings questions to our mind. What was wrong with the first covenant? Why why was that not good enough in the Old Testament? There's two reasons that are given in the chapters that follow that phrase. For if the first covenant had been faultless, if it didn't have any issues, well, then we wouldn't have needed a second covenant in the person of Jesus. But the first covenant was faultless. It did have issues. We do need a second covenant. So, two problems. First, there was not a mutual loving relationship in the first covenant. There was only one party who faithfully committed his love. Imagine the marriage picture again. If you only have one spouse faithfully committing, you don't really have a faithful marriage, do you? And in the same way here, this first covenant that was made with his spouse, the nation of Israel, they had continued again and again to run from God run toward other gods, worship idols. In fact, right after they got the regulations of this covenant, as Moses is coming down the mountain, they're worshiping a golden calf. The story just couldn't be plainer again and again all through the Old Testament that God's people were unfaithful. They did not keep the regulations of the law and the covenant, and they did not love him faithfully like he loved them. He finds fault with them. That's the fault. Look in verse 7, the way he says there's a, there's a fault. 
But verse 8 says he finds fault with them, those Israelites. And he makes it clear in verse 9 the reason why. For they did not continue in my covenant, as, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Which is a summary of how God continued to judge them and exile them and pour out the curses of their failing to obey the laws of the first covenant. So that's the first fault with the covenant. But if we dig deeper, we see that that's not the only fault with the first old covenant. There's another problem. Second problem with the old covenant is that the laws that God gave them could never fix their problem. Their problem was they did not love God. They didn't stay faithful. And the laws he gave, written on stone tablets, would never change their hearts nor lead them back with faithfulness to their original covenant they made with God. The sacrifices couldn't forgive their sins. There was, there was just a problem with the old covenant system to finally bring it back together the way God originally intended the covenant to work. And so in verse 9 of chapter 9, you see this made quite plain. According to this arrangement of the old covenant system, you see that in verse 1 of 9-1, he's talking about, now the first covenant had its regulations, its laws, and, and how God's to be approached and worshipped. And he then lists all of these laws and regulations. And then look at the summary statement here in verse 9. Now according to this arrangement in the old covenant, the gifts and sacrifices that are offered, they have a problem. They cannot perfect or mature. That's the word that we know is the end goal of. They can't accomplish the end goal and perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Rather, they only deal with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Do you see the problem? The old covenant regulations could not perfect or mature or bring to the end goal the need of the people to have a clear conscience forgiven by God and loving him forever. Can't do it. Chapter 10 makes this again plain. It's part of the reason why we're not going through this section by section by section. He's so repetitive in these three chapters. In chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, look at the way he says, The law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. And notice the problem of the law. It can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. See the issue again? These sacrifices and these laws given in the Old Covenant, they can't make perfect the worshipers who draw near to God. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to have been offered. Would they not have been, ceased to have been offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have need of cleansing of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Here we see both the problem and also one of the reasons why the law was to begin, given to begin with. We see the problem is that they can't perfect the worshiper. And therefore be faithful to the covenant. But if you see in chapter 10, verse 2 and 3... Having once been cleansed, they would have no longer need to have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. We could go through a variety of other passages of Scripture, but the New Testament teaches here and 
quite many other places, that the law of God given to the people in the book of Exodus, in Deuteronomy again, and all through the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, was to expose them of their unfaithfulness. Was to remind them of their sin and help point the way that this covenant, they have been unfaithful to it. And they don't love God as they should. This means, as we understand how all this works together, it would be inappropriate for any of you to take passages of Scripture that talk negatively about the old covenant and say, see, it's bad. It's it's no good. No, no, we're bad. That's what it's trying to show us. These laws, they couldn't accomplish the end goal, but the problem wasn't with the laws. God's, God's laws are good. They're perfect laws. It's not like they were bad laws or a bad covenantal system. It was a good covenantal system for that time, but not for the ultimate purpose. And that's why the New Testament can talk negatively about it for that reason. The old covenant system could not accomplish the full final purpose of God's big, huge plan for all of creation. Couldn't do it. So in that sense, it's, it's not good enough. It's incomplete There's negative language all through the New Testament speaking about it. But do not confuse that with, oh, see, God's laws are bad. Law is bad. Obeying God is, see, we're not about that. We're about grace because the law's done away with, and we're in the new covenant, and the new covenant's just about forgiveness and grace. It doesn't matter what you do every day. It doesn't matter at all. Just go for it, guys. There's grace. Friends, that's such a horrible teaching. That's not putting your Bible together very well. And that's missing the whole point of these passages. So let's not fall into that error as Christians. There's grace, so let's let sin abound and live up this grace. How should we understand these things then? It does matter what we do. And God's laws are good. How then will we obey them? Because of this new relationship in the new covenant. Look with me in chapter 8, verses 10 through 12, in the description of the new covenant. This is how God's laws will be obeyed. This is how God's relationship will be restored, and his covenant will come to its final, ultimate purpose. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for in fact they shall all know me. For from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, I will remember their sins no more. Do you see the three things that are promised, the better promises of the new covenant first? That they write the laws not on stone tablets. That's where the laws were in the Old Covenant. Written on stone tablets, Ten Commandments, put into the Ark of the Covenant, inside of the temple, only to be entered once a year. Holy of Holies. Separate. Written down. External. Not internal. Here we find that the law is written on minds and hearts. They will be internalized. They will be owned. They will become a part of who you are. You see the next thing that's promised in verse 11. They will teach 
No one will need to teach his neighbor. Other translations or different manuscripts use the phrase citizen. The idea here is not necessarily your next door neighbor, but the other person in the covenant next to you. So I want you to imagine in Old Testament Israel, you had a whole gathering of Israelites. Some of those Israelite people, they believed that not only were they in a covenant together, but they loved and they worshiped and they obeyed God, but others didn't. And so there would be times where the same people within the same gathering of covenant people, some of them would know the Lord personally, intimately, worship him, and others would not. So you'd have within the covenant some members helping others say, know the Lord, worship him, he's the one true Lord. Here in this covenant, there will be no need for members within the covenant already to tell one another, hey, you need to know the Lord. They already know the Lord. Every single member of this new covenant knows him personally. He knows them and they know him. That's a whole different reality, a radical difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. It's a better promise. And the last promise that he gives here in verse 12 then, it's the basis for all of these other things. How the law is going to be written on their hearts. Their hearts are are dirty. How are they going to know the Lord? They're dirty. Verse 12, he'll be merciful to them in their iniquities and remember their sins no more. In the old covenant, God saw sin. And when he saw it in the people of Israel, he turned his face away from his people. He cursed them. He judged them. Disregarded them. But friends, praise God. In the new covenant, God sees Jesus Christ covered in all of our sins. And he turns his face away from Jesus and accepts us. Do you see the difference? In the old covenant, God sees our sins and turns away from us. In the new covenant, he sees us and turns away from our sins because they're all on Jesus. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. And it's that good news when you hear it proclaimed that you as a sinner can have all your sins washed away and taken away. It changes your heart, and now you want to love and obey God. That's what's being referred to here about writing his law on your hearts and on your minds. You're changed. You're converted. You're transformed. And this now makes you a new covenant people that you know the Lord personally. You know his presence in you. You know about him, and you want to know him more. Jesus Christ died on a cross to take away all our sins once and for all, to take the covenant curse upon himself. This is what Hebrews 10, 11 through 14 makes quite plain. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away the sins. The old covenant couldn't take away sins, but, verse 12, when Jesus Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He did what? He perfected the very thing the old covenant laws and regulations could not do. He did. How? 
One single sacrifice, one event in history, once and for all, never to be repeated again. It is finished. It is done. Hallelujah. Amen? And this does away with all religion. Because Christianity is now based on one simple historical fact. Jesus died and took away our sins. Can you make that claim with any other world religion? Say, for example, you took away Muhammad. Take away the historical figure Muhammad. Could you still theoretically have someone else give the teachings of Islam and still have Islam? Yes, you could. You could have a different prophet give the same exact teachings. Same thing with Buddhism. Same thing with any other Hinduism. Take away the person who started the religious movement It doesn't really matter. It's just a group of teachings and rules and regulations of how you can reach God. Take away Jesus Christ. You have no Christianity. Take away the cross of Christ, and there is no forgiveness of sins. There is no worship of this holy God. Do you understand how this does away and contrasts with every world religion then? Once for all. Historically accurate. So it's really just a matter of, if you want to, be a skeptic out there, and you have friends, maybe you yourself. Why should I believe in Christianity? It's historically reliable. Did Jesus either die on a cross and rise again from the dead, or didn't he? That's really, that's the question for you today if you're a skeptic. Did Jesus Christ die on a cross and rise again from the dead? That makes all the difference in the world, not just for world history, but it makes all the difference in the world for your faith. And what true religion should be ultimately about. God coming down and changing us through that one once and for all act. Did you see that language in verse 14? By a single offering, he perfected who? People who are already being sanctified now. They're being changed. You see that? They're being changed in their internal heart. They're having a law written on their heart. They're being made holy. What was the problem with the old covenant? The people was the problem with the old covenant. So what's the solution in the new covenant? New people. You see how this fits together, friends? Are you starting to see that Jesus did not come to create a new religion? He came to create a new relationship. Secondly, Jesus did not come to create a new religion. He came to create a whole new world. It is such a pitiful thing to think Jesus started just another set of religious teachings. What what almost blasphemy. That doesn't even jive with the claims that Jesus made himself. And just say, hey, I'm a guy on the earth and I've got some new teachings for how to live and worship God. He came to create a whole new world. Literally, I mean world. How did he do it? Chapter 8, verse 13 shows, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. God's plan in the Old Testament is progressively building toward this one climactic moment when Jesus makes the other covenants obsolete. The other covenants. I know primarily 8 through 10 is talking about the 
old covenant made with Israel at Mount Sinai. But that covenant, if you go backwards a little bit, was made on the basis of the covenant made with Abraham. And if you follow the storyline of Scripture, you see that in the beginning of creation, God created a whole world where people would image him, reflect his glory, and he would fill the whole earth with people who love God and worship him perfectly. When sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3, a curse was placed upon them. You see that they were naked and ashamed. You see that one of the sons was murdered, and the other son who murdered him turned into a whole group of people that were pagan, awful, terrible people. And then from there, you see the earth just gets worse and worse and worse until Genesis 5 and 6 finally get to a point where he says, God regretted even making the earth to begin with. So he decides to recreate the world. And there we see the first instance of this word covenant in Genesis chapter 6. God makes a covenant with Noah. When he makes the covenant with Noah, he uses the exact same language of Genesis 1 through 3. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Even the stages of the flood, the flood had all waters covering the whole earth, and the Spirit hovered over the waters. That's Genesis 1. When you read the Noah account, you see the Spirit hovering over the waters. Then the dry ground rises up out of the waters in Genesis chapter 1. In the same way as the waters descend, the dry ground rises up in the flood story. Then you see the animals are given to put all over the earth, and you see the animals are now then put all over the earth. Follow the progression of Genesis 1 through 3 and the flood story. You see it's creation and new creation. And the exact same command of be fruitful and multiply that was given to Adam was given to Noah. And in the same way that Adam fell and nakedly was ashamed, so too the story ends where Noah is naked and ashamed in a drunken stupor covered by his son. Have you noticed before how similar Genesis 1 through 3 and 6 through 9 are? Because Genesis 6 through 9 and the story of creation is God saying, I'm going to make a covenant. And I'm going to make a covenant and I'm going to promise to never do that again. I will never destroy the earth again. He's going to build off of that covenant into a new covenant that he makes with Abraham in Genesis 12 through 15. And in this covenant, he says, now I'm going to make a people. And these people are going to fill the whole earth like he intended in Genesis 1. Notice everything starting from Genesis 1 through 3. I want you to picture right now a small stream of flowing water. Think of this stream as Genesis 1 through 3, our first little stream of water. Then comes Genesis 6 through 9, and as that stream gets added, we get a little bit more momentum. We're getting a little bigger. We might be a creek now. Now we move on forward to Genesis 12 through 15, and it's getting bigger and wider. We have a new covenant made, and it's adding to the flow and building off of what was said in Genesis 1 through 3 and 6 through 9 in the previous chapters. Then if you fast forward, you have finally another new covenant made. This covenant made at Mount Sinai. This was to explain to the people how they were to live so that they would, in fact, be a display of God's glory among all the nations over the whole earth. God's plan has always been cosmic, not just national. This plan with Israel was a cosmic plan to bless all of the nations and that through these nations, the whole earth would be blessed. And they would do that by obeying the commands that God gives them in the next stream that we just mentioned, the covenant made at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, the law. 
Later on, you'll have a final stream added, and now this is starting to get to be a mighty river flowing. Covenant made with David. Talking about how God will have a new king over all of his kingdom creation who will rule and reign and justice will be over the whole earth. And through this king, all the nations will be blessed. The covenant made with David. But all of these streams empty out into one mighty ocean. Friends, did we sing a song earlier that said there is a a current, a river of God's love, like a mighty ocean Underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love. It is an ocean of God's love. We don't just sing songs like that because it's heartwarming and it's nice to think about God loving us. We sing songs like that because it's true. God does love us, the whole world, in this way. All of these streams are flowing into this mighty ocean called the New Covenant, Notice there's similarities, there's, there's themes and there's truths that are like the water that carry through all the way into the ocean, but the ocean is kind of like this whole new animal, so much bigger and vast and greater than all the other streams that gone before it. This is what God is doing when he establishes a new covenant with Jesus Christ. He's not starting just some religion or some gatherings of Christians on the world. He's wanting to create a whole new world. So that when he rises from the dead, the New Testament is going to tell us that that resurrection from the dead is the first of many resurrections to come, where he will take dead people and rise them again, and he will give them new bodies, and he will make new of the whole earth. But how is he going to get to that point? Why is there a delay or a gap? Why not just do that then? The plan that God has had has been progressive throughout, and the plan that we are in right now of this new covenant is that God, like he did in Genesis, started with creation and filled the earth with human beings. Here now, he does the opposite in the new creation. He starts filling the earth with new human beings who have been made new creations by putting his spirit in them and being a display to the nations what heaven will be like one day when he comes back and makes the new heavens and new earth brand new. That's what we're doing right here with church This gathering is a picture for the nations and for the world. This group of people who have God's spirit in them and love God, not just so they can get stuff from God, but because they love him. Those kind of people, even though they're sinful, even though they're hypocrites at times, even though they mess up, they're genuinely loving God. Those sort of people are a picture of what the whole earth will be filled with in the new heavens and new earth. I hope you see this new covenant is bigger than just a new religion, or a new church gathering, or a new way to worship God. It is the first of many steps to a whole new world. And your story, my friend, fits into that greater grand story. This is what the Bible has and offers for us. A whole new world. Let's close with three helpful, and I hope are helpful, applications. First, if you're here this morning and you're not sure if you're a Christian... I want you to know that some people will come to Christianity and make it another religion. They will use the Bible, they will use its laws, they will neglect its gospel, and they will try and use Christianity to make themselves a better them. Christianity does not offer you this morning a better you. It offers you a new you. If you would like to become a Christian, then you are dying to yourself 
laying down all your goals and dreams and aspirations and saying, I have new goals, I have a new heart, a new life, a new vision for a whole new world. Non-Christians, if you're here this morning, repent of your sins. Turn by faith in the promise that Jesus Christ can wash away all your sins, make you a whole new person, and follow him. Secondly, for our church, Embassy Church, I've already made mention that this group, this gathering, although here in this room we might have some visitors among us, but the members of Embassy Church, we are a new covenant people. Therefore, all of us know the Lord. All of us have the law of God written on our hearts. If, in fact, we are new covenant people. Therefore, we do not offer to people who are not new covenant people the rights of the covenant, namely baptism and the Lord's Supper. You follow the progression here of the covenants, realize that one of the newness and distinct features of the new covenant is that all of us who are in the covenant know the Lord. If that's true, then only those who know the Lord should be baptized, signifying their death to their old self and their new life, and should receive the Lord's Supper. So in just a moment, when we take the Lord's Supper, as I do every single week, I try and make it plain— If you don't know yourself to be a Christian, if you've never been baptized, if you've never had other people around you help you understand what it means to be a Christian, and you've only had your own individual assessment of yourself, it could be that maybe you're not a Christian. could be you are and you've just not talked with other people about it. But either way, this Lord's Supper practice is the new covenant of Jesus' blood, and it's only for people in the new covenant who know the Lord. And that's why I say that every single week we take the Lord's Supper. Thirdly, This isn't just good for non-Christians. This isn't just good for the church and the implications in the church. This teaching about the new covenant is good for the world. It's good for the whole world. I mean, it's good news because I just declared this morning that the whole world is going to be made new again. I don't know if that makes you a little happy or chipper, but I think that could help a little bit. Your problems, your sorrows, your pains, your sufferings, your story, it fits into a grand, bigger story. And God's going to use all of those things for his good and glory one day and bring all injustices right. But furthermore, many people have written and talked and argued that religion is bad for the world. And in some senses, you want to agree with them based on the definitions of religion that have been given the last three weeks. But friends, true religion, true Christianity at least, is not bad for the world. It is the only hope for the world. Some have distorted the teachings of the Bible and made it another religion and used those teachings to support African slavery or racism in the last 50, 60 years in the South while other people use the same exact scriptures like William Wilberforce or Martin Luther King Jr. and use the gospel of Jesus Christ as a means to show that Christianity is not another religious system. Rather, it is a message about God is giving grace to everyone, not just the great and the elite, but from the greatest to the least, is what the New Covenant promise said. The New Covenant relationship is not made with the moral superior For the white or the black, the African, the European, the Asian, it's made for all, for the entire world, not just for Israel, for everyone. 
You see, if you and I would believe that men in this world, men and women, all of humanity is only saved by God's grace alone through faith and not our religious performance, then there would be no difference in our minds between the least and the greatest in the earthly sense. We would not think of anyone being superior because of their wealth, their education, their skin color. We are all equally lost, but yet, by God's grace, we are all equally affirmed and loved by his cross. The gospel destroys the things that lead to religious conflict and wars and elitism and superiority complexes and racism. Our world does not need more rules or a new religion about equality. What our world desperately needs is a gospel. A gospel of a whole new world with whole new people in them that have hearts changed. They need new creatures who love God, hate injustice, hate evil, and want to pursue righteousness. Friend, is that you this morning? Are you one of those new creatures that love righteousness, want to stand up for righteousness here now in this world as a picture to the rest of the world of what heaven will one day be like? I pray we will be. Let's do that now. Father in heaven, we want to come this morning and give you thanks for this amazing new covenant promise. Better promises, better covenant, better sacrifice, permanent forever temple. What glorious hope we have that the new covenant puts an end to every religious system, even the old covenant laws being fulfilled and superseded by this wonderful promise of your spirit in our hearts, making us new creation changing the whole world through us. Lord God, I want to pray and ask that your spirit would come down now on anyone here who would not have faith in Jesus, that they would desire and long for things of righteousness, turn from their sins and trust in you. I pray that there be many that who are not in this room this morning, who are worshiping lesser gods and lesser idols. God, would you pour out your spirit, change their hearts, Lord, I think of the children who are upstairs right now. What they need is not more rules from their parents. They need new hearts. Would the teaching of Embassy Church on a weekly basis help teach them the gospel, the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit and the newness of his law being written on our hearts that we can know God. Oh God, we want to confess that no one in this room was born into a family that then became a Christian because they were born into a family. God, we want to confess we were born again by the Spirit of God who has graciously opened our eyes and heart. Spread that Spirit through us. In Jesus' name, amen.